electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Clean up in aisle seven. When you hear that in the supermarket, it can mean one of two things. Either you have to brace yourself for the mess because you need something from aisle seven, or it means nothing because you're not in that aisle and you have no reason to go there. That's this stock market in a nutshell. On a day when the Dow lost 86 points, that's going to be advanced 0.18%. The Nasdaq actually rallied 0.74% with the S&P and Nasdaq setting new record high closes. We've got a series of aisles, some of which badly need cleanup, namely the industrials and the financials. But other aisles still have high demand, and it's tough to keep the merchandise on the shelves. Here's the problem. Most people insist on seeing the stock market as a totality rather than a market of thousands of different stocks. It's like the supermarket. See, there's the freezer aisle. It's not the same as the fresh produce aisle, right? They're different. But you often hear people treating them like an undifferentiated mass. When really rich money managers come on our air, their funds are so big that sometimes they can only be meaningfully trading the entire market, the S&P. They'd overwhelm most individual stocks if they tried to take a sizable position. So it's easier for them to flit in and out of the S&P 500 futures, which contain every aisle. You don't have to do that, though, right? You can just avoid the messes and head straight for the clean aisles that are staying strong. If you get a cleanup on aisle seven situation that takes down the entire market, think of it as a buying opportunity for the other better aisles. Or entirely, if you really want to own one of those messed up stocks, maybe they're too low and you can do it. So what's the difference between a good aisle and a bad aisle? You get a crowd stuffing their carts with anything that moves in the senior and junior growth stocks right now. That suggests the economy could be cooling down or the Federal Reserve might be about to slam on the brakes to tamp down on inflation. (coughs) Too many rice cakes before the show. Once the Fed starts a tightening cycle, money managers start to swap out the cyclical boom and bust stocks and they swap into the secular growth stocks. 
That playbook was a huge driver of today's action, as swift traders are trying to get ahead of that call. So what they're doing, they're selling these now because they think others are going to sell them later. Then there are the aisles where the jars are smashed and there's liquid all over the floor. And boy, that was the industrials today, where the glassware's flying all over the place and there aren't enough mops to clean up everything. Oh, boy, that was the bank aisle where people were slipping and falling after J.P. Morgan Jamie Dimon talked about a 38% decline in trading revenue. Ouch! That's much slower than expected. Of course, once one jar gets knocked over, it tends to take down everything else in the aisle, which is why both Goldman Sachs and Bank of America got hammered, too, even as the later, latter told a very positive story this morning on Squawk Box. I don't know if you caught it. It was really good. That ugly trading number from J.P. Morgan is a serious mess. It's a real problem. So you have to expect some analysts are going to cut numbers and maybe even downgrade the bank stocks tomorrow. That's why you can't get ahead of these things too quickly. But how about the other aisles? See, for the most part, nothing really newsworthy happened. That's what makes some of these moves so disconcerting to people. For example, no one said boo about Caterpillar, yet its stock fell for the fourth straight day. Now, some might say that's because Biden's infrastructure bill is stalled. Cat's now down nearly 30 points from its highs. But I think that misses the real driver. To me, Cat's falling because there's a perception that the Federal Reserve will have to change its posture at Wednesday's meeting. Now, I think that's wrong. But a lot of people are assuming Jay Powell have no choice but to tighten after last week's red-hot consumer price index number. That's why the Dow Industrials really got hit today. But not the NASDAQ. The Dow is full of stocks that would be crushed if Powell gives the inflationistas what they want. That's this group, okay? This group actually does well on that, but I'm really focused for a moment on these. To these people, need, these people need to listen to what Powell actually says, rather than presuming he'll stick to the Fed's old playbook. See, I've really got to make this point. See, he's, Powell's different. He's thrown that playbook out the window. I think Powell's very committed to an easy course, even if you believe inflation's out of control. He wants to keep rates low so that the unemployed and the disenfranchised get decent jobs. If the cost of a stronger labor market is above average inflation, so be it. Whether you agree with Powell or not, he's been very upfront that this is the plan. So I'm willing to wade into the beaten down industrial aisle and start picking up bargains tomorrow, while the mess has still yet be cleared. This group, not this group. But how about the aisles that are bustling? All right. What's there for you if you if you like me, you believe that inflation is running its course and the Fed knows what to do? Well, okay. so let me introduce you to these two terms. These are really what's driving a lot of stock market action right now. And a lot of people don't know them because they've gone out of style. I want to bring them back. All right. Right now, there are senior growth stocks and junior growth stocks. As much as I love the term FAANG, that is my acronym for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix and Google. I think we need to broaden it out. Call them senior growth stocks because there are so many other senior growth stocks that are now being put in the cart. For example, we had a big move in Adobe ahead of its earnings on Thursday. That counts. This stock, which had lost its lift not that long ago, actually hit its all-time high today. It it better be good when it reports. Microsoft works. NVIDIA, right? Uh, And after a long dormancy, Salesforce is starting to run, too. When the banks plummet, the money flows into the financial technology plays. Banking light, so to speak. So that means Square and PayPal. See, panic buying. Maybe fintech should have its own aisle. Then there are the junior growth stocks, smaller and faster growing than their senior components. Now, there's, for instance, 
Uh, and these, by these, these stocks have been roaring. There's Twilio, the fantastic company that lets app developers push messages to the customers, among other things. There's Roku, which is the cord-cutting kingpin. CrowdStrike, we just had them on, right? They stopped uh, crypto kleptos. Etsy, the online marketplace for all sorts of handcrafted goodness based in Brooklyn. And DocuSign, which has become the de facto way to close deals over the Internet even after the pandemic. Junior growth stocks are beloved by Kathy Wood of ARK Invest, who had an incredible year in 2020, but was struggling in 2021 until recently. Often she seems to keep these stocks all by herself. Now, I am not against Fangit and Friends. I've been a huge supporter of the senior growth stocks, especially Amazon. But I'm beginning to believe that it's time to examine the stocks in the godforsaken aisle where people keep slipping on copper and lumber and iron ore because now those stocks are going down. If you think as I do, that the Fed will keep the fires going, you want to own a steel stock or a heavy machinery player or a chemical company. Cleveland Cliffs, it was down $2 today. Could go down under 20 You got to probably buy it then. If Caterpillar comes to 200 I mean, come on, let's buy that one. Dow Chemical, good yield. I even sanctioned some energy stocks because many of these companies have changed their suboptimal ways. Chevron, Pioneer, even Exxon. These are the kinds of companies that thrive when economies around the world are growing. And that's exactly what I expect. But the bottom line, until we see the Fed's eyes on, and that's, of course, the whites of their eyes on Wednesday, you can expect the action to look like today, where we had lots of traffic in the junior and senior growth aisles with shoppers fleeing from the messy industrial and, yes, bank stock aisles. Let's go to Tina in Illinois. Tina. Thank you for choosing this over law or journalism, Jim. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're very <laughs> kind. You're very kind. And you know what? I don't regret it one bit. Work hard here, and I love my team so much. Go. What's going on? Yeah, you guys are awesome. I bought Bumble back in February. I liked the Women First narrative, Bumble BFF and Bumble Biz, right. and that two of my adult children have chosen it recently as a way to meet people. Even That's- with today's Bump, I'm down 33%. I know you recently said it's not a stock you would own. Would you suggest I buy, hold, or sell? And uh, I sell- like the stock very much. I like the company very much. The stock is a tough stock to own right now, but the company is great. Whitney Wolf Heard should come on, uh, and we will talk together, and you will see why I think that, well, actually, you just told me in your anecdotal, I think empirically what you found is what everybody's finding around the world, and that stock should be bought, not sold. Let's go to John in Florida. John. Hey, Jim. How are you? I am good. How about you? Good. So it's a pleasure to be talking with you. So here's the question. Right around April, May last year, I bought Clorox because I figured with the pandemic and everybody trying to be clean, it was a perfectly good and reasonable stock to buy, and I paid close to $210 a share. Now, I can't find it on the supermarket store shelves. I hear things about supply chain. The stock is at $178. I don't know what I should do. Should I buy it? buy more of it? Should I sell it or sit tight? It's kind of in a no man's land. Look, I think Linda Rendell's doing a great job. But here's the problem. The stock only yields 2.66. Typically, I like that stock when it yields three. It's down 13% for the year. That is not going to endear people who want to have stocks that are actually doing well. I think it's a great company. I think you just have to hold it until it hits 3% and then buy some more. All right. Until we hear from the Fed Wednesday, expect to see lots of shopping in the junior and senior growth aisles of the supermarket and shoppers continuing to abandon 
these two very messy aisles. Oh, man, buddy, tonight, you've heard of the June swoon, but as the month winds down and we head into July, how should you approach the averages? I'm going off the charts to find out. It's going to blow you away. Then I'm talking the state of small business with the CEO of American Express in a special interview from Bar San Miguel. And after a big day for Bitcoin, I'm sitting down with a crypto firm that claims its transactions are both faster and cheaper than either Bitcoin or Ethereum. Could it present real competition? You're not going to want to miss that. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Kind of a weird moment here with the Dow Jones pulling back from its highs. It's the Nasdaq doing well. I mean, right now, everyone's laser focused on the Wednesday Fed meeting, right? Lots of money managers seem worried about inflation, except the bond traders, who are usually the first ones to freak out. I mean, if they're okay, I'm okay. You know, I like this market. But I think we do need to take things, let's say, one week at a time. Rather than getting dragged into the inflation debate or the bogus growth versus value false dichotomy, I want to help you navigate your way through this period by looking for patterns, patterns so that you know what to watch for. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts again with the help of Larry Williams. Look, this guy's a mythical figure in the world of technical analysis. Everybody who's ever studied tech, technical analysis always starts with Williams. He's been trading stocks, futures and commodities since before I learned how to drive. He's also written more than a dozen books and created a host of indicators that we use all the time here. Every every trader does. Most importantly, though, I mean, this guy's been on a roll. Yeah, I can't believe. Last week, Larry's chart work told him to pound the table on Amazon. So we did just that. And since then, the stocks jumped nearly 200 points. 
but especially is finding seasonal patterns, cycles that tend to repeat themselves year after year. In the spring, he told us to buy the retailers going to the Easter holiday, and it played out almost perfectly. Last year, he gave us a terrific Thanksgiving trade and a powerful Fourth of July trade. And of course, last April, when everyone thought the world was ending, Williams made one of the boldest country calls I have ever seen in my entire career. He predicted the economy would start rebounding from COVID by mid-May, which meant it was time to buy, buy, buy. I know I was a little skeptical. Many other you were, but he nailed it perfectly. So tonight, tonight we're going back to the well because Williams has a new pattern he wants to highlight. Last year, we talked about that Fourth of July trade, how you can usually make good money buying the S&P 500 shortly before the holiday and then selling a few days later. Williams still likes the Fourth of July story. But before before then, there's usually a late June swoon. Think of it as the pre-Fourth of July play. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Williams has been at this since the 1960s, and he's found that stocks tend to get hit near the end of June, ranging from a modest dip to a substantial dive. And that's why he recommends selling the S&P 500 towards the end of the month and then maybe buying it back a few sessions later. You don't have to short the market, but if you're nimble enough to trade, this might be a good moment to try to sidestep some pain. So when would you sell? All right, take a look at what I'm about to show you is almost science fiction. Take a look at this chart, which shows how you would have done historically if you sold the S&P on each trading day in the second half of June, assuming you closed out the trade four days later. What Williams finds is that if you sell in the last week of June, you typically lose money. The second to last week is when you ideally want to ring the register, or again, if you're so inclined, you can go short. In particular, you would have seen the best performance selling the S&P on the eighth or ninth last trading day of the month. In, In 2021, Write this down, okay? It means selling either this Friday or next Monday, the 18th or the 21st. You got those dates? Friday or Monday. I need you to write that down because I think it's going to happen. If that's the sweet spot to sell, how long before you swap back in? All right, check out this table. Looking at the last 22 years, if you sold the S&P on the 8th to last trading day of June and then bought it back on the first profitable opening after three days, you made money how often? 60, 50? How about 100% of the time? However, if you waited a little longer and sold on the first profitable opening after five days, you actually made the most money, even if it only worked 21 out of 22 times. The only year that didn't work was in 2011. Come on, that was a crazy roller coaster market that kept being slapped around by European financial woes and the totally man-made U.S. debt ceiling crisis. We don't have anything like those two, so I'm not that worried. I mean, 22 for 22 ain't bad. If you want to see this table in chart form, it looks like this. Even if you're not nimble enough to dump the S&P and then get back in a few days later, you need to be aware of this pattern. Why? Because if history is any guide, next week's going to be ugly. Based on Williams' analysis, shorting the market next week has been a good strategy for at least the last 22 years. So if the S&P starts getting crushed, I want you to remember that you're up against a powerful seasonal trend if you want to start bottom fishing. In other words, don't read too much into it. Don't try to extrapolate it. Don't try to find a deeper fundamental reason to justify the weakness. You know what? Why don't you think of it as the weather? Remember, this seasonal pullback is usually followed by a nice rally right after the right around the 4th of July. Something Williams told us about last year. If you bought the S&P 500 a couple of days before the July 4th holiday and then sold it into the first up opening a couple of days later, you would have made money in 21 of the last 22 years. Before that jump, though, you need to get through the late June swoon. If all of this sounds like astrology, 
sell the S&P right after the summer solstice. Believe me, I get it. But Williams is not an astrologer, people. His methodology is as empirical as it gets. He actually tried to run the numbers on astrology, doing computer simulations on the, con- on the conjunctions and the equinoxes and the solstices, but he just couldn't find anything that worked. The late June swoon has nothing to do with your star sign and everything to do with a long-established 22-year historical pattern. While I don't know why it works, I absolutely certainly would not bet against it. Here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Larry Williams, suggest that the S&P 500 could get hit next week. And if you're a nimble trader, you might want to sell the S&P at the opening next Monday, then swap back in near the end of the week. Even if you're not that nimble, watch out for the weakness, because it could create a nice buying opportunity. Let's go to James in Connecticut. James. Hey, Jim. First time caller here from Griswold, Connecticut. I want to first thank you for all the great content you provide for free. I know oh, you saved me a lot of hassle. Oh, that's um, nice. You got that ESPN guys up there feel the same way at Bristol, I think. How can I help? Uh, so I'm looking into Dave and Buster's. I haven't opened a position yet. Um, I caught my eye last week with their strong earnings report. Um, it seems like they're building on the reopening momentum. They showed uh, they started the quarter with 107 stores open. They now have 138 open. And Brian Jenkins seems pretty confident uh, moving forward. Uh, first of all, I totally agree about Brian Jenkins. Second, I agree that the company's doing well. But third, here's where I'm going to disagree with you. When I see a quarter like that and the stock didn't go up and the Nasdaq's been on fire like it is, I question whether you shouldn't wait for next week at a lower time. I don't like how that stock is acting in relation to the quarter itself. Jim in New York. Jim. Hi there, Jimmy Chill. How are you today? The chill man is so nice on on Twitter. I don't know if you guys have noticed that lately. I'm completely chill. What's up? Uh, listen, thanks for all you do. Thank uh, you. Back, at, back in May, uh, you gave us a couple of uh, suggestions for a trade. Uh, starting around Memorial Day, uh, I, guess, I guess based on a seven-year chart, I think, of yours, if I remember correctly. Correct. And, uh, uh, you know, and then holding them for a period of time. One of the stocks I, I purchased uh, was CWH. Uh, I purchased it around 44 to since uh, tanked a little, and I, I had to stop out at 39.88. Now, with everyone wanting to venture outdoors, you know, since mm-hmm. the pandemic is it seems that uh, there would be a pent-up demand for camping supplies. Are the uh, are the margins squeezed due to higher costs? It's the uh, margins. I, buy- I think it's the margins, and I also think the stock had a big move off the bottom. I do think that Thor, which is only up 16% now and had a great quarter, but was down 5 today, makes more sense for what to buy. And thank you for the kind words. I like T-H-O. All right. The S&P could hit a rough patch next week. If you're not nimble enough to swap in and out of the index, I actually recommend using the weakness, as I talked about at the top of the show, to do some buying of some very high-quality stocks. Much more man money ahead. I'm hitting Barzan Miguel with the CEO of American Express to find out how the company is supporting small businesses like that one. Then, I'm talking with the new kid on the block, blockchain, that is. Don't miss my sit-down with the CEO of Solana to find out how it's giving Bitcoin and Ethereum a run for the money. And forget the man, why the pushers of meme stocks are sticking it to themselves. So stay with Kramer. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We need to stay on top of the recovery. You know what that means? It means following the money. By which I mean the payment companies. And when it comes to payments, it really doesn't get much better than American Express. They have tremendous insight into what's happening with consumers and small businesses. Earlier today, we got a chance to venture out of the studio for a fully vaccinated sit-down with Steve Squirry, the chairman and CEO of American Express at Bar San Miguel, my small plate Mexican restaurant in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. Take a look. Steve, you have the pulse better than anyone in this country. I'm starting to get to feel that there's a bit of a fabulous roaring 20s going on as the pandemic ends. Yeah, well, first, a pleasure to be here with you today oh, in, your, you. in your restaurant, <laughs> which has just much. recently uh, reopened. Yes. But yeah, so when, look, when you look at the U.S. economy right now, I think it's really starting to come back. I mean, you've got vaccinations where everybody's, you know, more and more people are getting vaccinated. We had tremendous support from the government from uh, a PPP perspective, stimulus, uh, credit numbers are not like anybody thought they were going to be. When I look at my credit numbers, my delinquency numbers, they're lower than they've been in years. And, you know, then personal savings. Personal savings are doubled. And so what does that mean? Well, that means people have money to spend. They have discretionary money to spend. And what do consumers do? Consumers consume. And so they will spend. And the last thing that I'll say, which really gives me sort of hope here, when we look at our travel numbers, our travel bookings in May were 95% of what they were in May of 2019. Without and international. With Yeah, that's U.S. That's the U.S. bookings without international. No, but that's extraordinary. It's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, how about restaurants? How are they doing? Well, restaurants are doing great. Um, and, you know, look, restaurants are probably about 85% of where they were in 2019. Okay. But the people that are really spending in light restaurants, millennials. 130% in April of what they spent back in 2019. And so we believe that that's gonna to continue to, to move that's forward. Incredible. We also believe that by the end of the year in the US, we will have a full consumer recovery from a travel perspective. And overall, by the end of the year, I think globally, we'll probably be about 80% of where we were in 2019. Well, first of all, that's amazing because the defaults are so low. But second, the millennials, you've got a line on younger people. Uh, it, like my kids, everyone wants American Express as soon as they're old enough. How did that happen? Well, I think that happened from experiences. I think, you know, what happened was as, as we looked at what people wanted, what my kids wanted, right. what your kids right. wanted. I mean, we, we live with millennials. Um, 
you know, what they want is access and they want experiences. And what our card provides is more of a lifestyle brand than it is a payment Very product. So. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, you can get lots of payment products, but can you get a payment product that's going to enhance your life and your ability to lead your life? And, you know, with the programs that we have, whether it's fine dining, uh, you know, uh, credits for travel and so forth, millennials like that. And millennials are the first ones that are back traveling now and eating at restaurants and so forth. We talk about millennials. They support small business. But the only people who have really supported small business the whole way from the Great Recession is American Express. Why? Yeah, look, small businesses, lifeblood of the economy, employ uh, most of the people in the United States, make communities vibrant. Uh, and we started support, supporting small businesses, Small Business Saturday, over 10 yeah. years ago. But, you know, as this pandemic started to to reach a fever pitch, we realized we were going to need to do something again to support small businesses. And so, uh, you know, last year uh, in the summertime, around this time, we launched a 12-week campaign globally, 18 different countries, $200 million to support uh, local small businesses, card member offers and and small business offers. In fact, I'll give you an exclusive. Next week, we are launching another small business campaign, a $100 million campaign, and we're going to start that next Monday, and that's going to go through Labor Day to support small businesses. And what we also did is, you know, in the, in the, in the throes of the winter months, uh, we had an order in to help out campaign, right? So we wanted consumers to, to go to their local small restaurants and order in and, and be able to support them. We did dining pavilions. We did uh, preservation for um, historic restaurants. We provided right. grants and, and so forth. So we really get behind small businesses because small businesses are really important customers to ours, not only from a merchant acceptance perspective right. where someone will come in and, and, and dine, but small businesses for us are big consumers of our card product. And when we look at small businesses, they use our product to run their businesses. Well, and Let's talk about that. Yeah, okay. you, you're breaking some news today. That's right. Because one of the things that we look to that we've had to just do patchwork is, well, how about our payroll? How do we handle the, the, the register? Uh, do we go to some of these outfits that just started whom we don't know? Can we go to American Express? Yeah. So, look, we made an acquisition during a pandemic. We made an acquisition of Cabbage. And Cabbage is a digital platform which basically has everything that a small business will need to manage their cash flow. So whether it was a working capital loan, um, you know, a, a transaction banking account, uh, you know, card integration and so forth. And we brought it into the franchise. We had to make it Amex, Amex ready. Right. Uh, and when we did that, uh, today we just launched that we're open, first small business checking account, our transaction account. Uh, which we launched uh, this morning, and, and we I, think it's going to be a big hit. And you're giving higher rates than the competitors. I saw that, the yeah. balance, which right. every dollar amount matters in small business. Absolutely. So 1.1% up to $100,000. And you know, the interesting thing about what we're doing here with Cabbage is we're taking a fintech platform right. and prov- uh, combining that with a scale, a scale business. And so when you look at our business, we're the number one small business issuer in the United States, right. the number one commercial card global. Globally. So take the agility and the digital uh, platform, combine that with scale, and we think we've got something really special here. Well, I know uh, last quarter I loved, you know that, and now that you're going to have more of the fintech that we want from American Express, it is going to be enhancing the stock and make it so that you, people don't trade away. Uh, I, I, we would all love to be just American Express in the register, all be connected. And Cabbage, I think, does it. Cabbage is going to really help to do that. I think, you know, what, what's important for us is 
we really want to be an important partner for small businesses. And I think Cabbage will do that. And there'll be other partnerships that we'll be able to build off Cabbage. And look, before we did Cabbage, we acquired Resi, the restaurant right. reservation system. And, you know, during the pandemic, we uh, reduced our, we eliminated our fees. And Resi, now what we're seeing now is double the reservations and we're seeing more restaurants go digital. One last thing I wanted to mention, your support for minority, for African-American business, extraordinary how much you're doing. Yeah, we've done a lot. We've done a lot, not only from grants. Uh, we've done grants. We've uh, provided access to capital, uh, mentorship, uh, and leadership training, and so forth. And, you know, look, when you look across the United States, uh, I think it's really important that not only we support, you know, black restaurant owners, but right. other minority owners as well, Asian, uh, Latino, mm -hmm. and so forth. And we've really tried to do that. And well, uh, I, I think it'll make a difference to the economy. Your thought leader, and as someone who knows small business, you're actually there. I mean, it's not just idle. We appreciate You're it. absolutely there. Steve Squirry, American Express Chairman and CEO. Wow. Great, Great to be to with you, Jim. You. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up, for every interest, there's an app. Who's getting these apps made and helping connect investors to the crypto they covet? Kramer makes an introduction next. not well-versed in cryptocurrencies. At this point, everybody's heard of the two big ones, Bitcoin and Ethereum. This year, though, there's a new blockchain that's been gaining steam. It's called Solana, which offers faster transaction speeds and a lower energy use profile. But how important is that? The amount of electricity that goes into cryptocurrency mining is downright appalling. So anything that's more energy efficient is an improvement. Last week, the company that created Solana, Solana Labs, announced that it raised more than $314 million from a series of venture capital investors in order to further develop its technology and seed new projects. I fully admit that I'm a neophyte in the world of crypto. I do own some uh, Bitcoin. I do own some Ethereum. But uh, well, if we're trying to keep up with the ecosystem and given the enthusiasm surrounding this one, I figure it's worth a closer look, even though it's private. So let's check in with Anatoly Yakovenko. I hope I got that right. I believe I do. The co-founder and CEO of Solana Labs to learn more. Mr. Yakovenko, welcome to Mad Money. Um, awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, look, I've got to go right to it because I, th I think you're – really, really impressive history. And there are people who have made fortunes who are connected with you. So I need to know, first of all, why does your company exist? And second, why we need it? Blockchain is a revolutionary technology that is really enabling people to go, you know, person to person without any intermediaries. But Bitcoin and Ethereum are just way too slow for that. So Solana's there to really enable that 1 billion people to go fully interconnected. Oh, well, let's figure this out. Way too slow. The way I like to compare is that, let's say a visa. We have American Express on tonight. They do so many calculations per second, so many things per second. You tell me that Ethereum and Bitcoin don't work as, as fast? Uh, no, uh, both Ethereum and Bitcoin are, can basically handle about a city the size of Berkeley, California. That, that's that's where they crap out. <laughs> oh, my. Um, and, and why is it because you're decentralized finance? Does yours work different or because you just have a better mousetrap? Um, so those technologies are about 10 years old. Proof of work and what they're based on are, are quite old. Um, Solana is based on a bunch of tech that myself and most of the folks that came out of Qualcomm kind of leverage from our you know, expertise in the wireless industry. And we really optimize this thing to take advantage of Moore's law, hardware that keeps getting faster and faster. 
Um, and we've benchmarked this to 65,000 TPS, which is the speed of Visa. Um, and our sites are bigger than that, you know, in our seed level deck, we, we literally set that it's blockchain at NASDAQ speed. So we want to slay some bigger dragons than just payments. All right. So the why, why don't we all switch to Solana? I mean, Solana sounds like it's actually commercial and the other guys sound like that they're antique. There's already thousands of people already switching. So uh, if, if you want to call it switching or if you want to call new, de- new, new engineers coming into the space and building new applications, we saw a massive influx of developers over the last year. Well, let me ask you something. There was a really brilliant article by my friend Mark Cuban. He's friends of a lot of people. I'm sure you know Mark. And he was saying that uh, I should ask about your revenues and how running this is different from uh, running any other business. Yeah, uh, financial decentralized networks, what are their revenues? Uh, I think it's too early for anybody to really give you a good answer on that. Um, And I think reality of this is that this is, you know, the next stage of of software eating the the world, and this is eating the financial world. Over the long term, finance makes money off volumes and AUM. I believe that these networks over the long term will, will end up making money or generating revenue for the, you know, the underlying holders based on volumes and AUM. Um, and but this is kind of like me telling you, you know, 1996, that us sharing pictures of cats with our friends is going to be half a trillion dollars. It's just it's just too early. <laughs> I got it. No, look, I started business in 95 that had no hope for revenue ended up making a lot of money and not as much as I would have liked. But yeah, I get you. If I had thought about the revenues, I never would have started. Now, let me ask you a couple other questions that are really important. What kind of applications run on Solana? One of the coolest things that was launched almost right after uh, we launched the network a year ago is this thing called Serum, which is a central limit order book style of exchange. Now, if you've heard anything about decentralized finance, you might have heard of this something called Uniswap, which is a, the thing that runs on Ethereum. It's this rudimentary market maker called, called Conscious Function Market Maker. What runs on Solana is the same tech that runs on NASDAQ, that runs on Binance, that runs on FTX. Um, you know, people thought that this was uh, we were crazy for even trying to do that. And that's the really the fundamental building block of finance, right, is price discovery, is figuring out capital risk at a particular price. And that thing is running and generating information that all these other applications that manage risk and capital, which is, you know, what's now called DeFi, that are building on top of it. So a lot of developers coming into the space using Serum and the Central Limit Order Book to build new ways to, you know, match capital and risk and, and generate yields and returns for traders and investors. And that, is, that's really cool. This is starting to make sense to me. It makes all sense. As someone who worked at Goldman looking for some, hoping for this technology one day rather than voice. I get this, but I never believed it could happen. One last question. We are concerned about this outfit tether uh, because it doesn't have the balance sheet that we like. Uh, some people are telling me, Jim, if you don't emphasize Tether, you don't even know this is the biggest risk to this whole system. I have to believe we're all in Solana. We don't have to worry about Tether. So there, there's alternatives to digital dollars. USDC is one of them. Uh, we're the second largest network where USDC has been issued by, from demand from uh, users using it. And I believe it's over half a billion already. Uh, Circle is, uh, I don't know if you know Jeremy Lair. He's this like kind of rock star entrepreneur that's been building businesses for like 20, 30 years now. Um, they're awesome. It's fully backed. Uh, and these are real digital dollars. So if you want to have the experience of crypto money, you know, get digital dollars into your Solana wallet. I'm going to do it. 
I don't know. I'm kind of stunned. I mean, I heard if I put you on that it would kind of blow my mind. I haven't had my mind blown in a long time. You just did it. Anatoly Yakovenko, co-founder and CEO of Solana. You've got it. I mean, I... You've got it. It's great that you came on the show. Thank you so much. Man, money... Sometimes your world gets open, and you have to know when it happens. Man, money's back after the break. Coming up next... Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It is time! It's over the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy, over the lightning round. Right, I'm going to start with Lucas in Minnesota. Lucas! Yo, Jimmy Kramer. Big backwards booyah for this guano crazy mountain that doesn't seem to run on fundamentals anymore. I'm seeing that the uh, vaccine stocks all beat up. But I don't think a lot of people realize we've still got about a billion shots to put in the arms of people all over the world. So my question is on J&J. Look, J&J is kind of a, it's a Teflon stock. It just goes up no matter what. And that's because it has a big, strong pipeline. And that's why you should own the stock. I need to go to Clay in Florida. Clay! (laughs) Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Hey, I'm I'm looking to uh, uh, add another stock to uh, the space and defense sector. I've already already owned Maxar Technologies and Virgin Galactic. Okay. Looking to add Lockheed Martin. What do you I think? I think you're dead right. I think that James Ta- Jim Takeland. Ah, I think he's money. I remember him at AMT. Turned us about made about 200 points for us with AMT. I say go with him. Let's go to Matt in California. Matt. Jim, I'm Matt. calling about a major player in the aggregates business. They have a massive footprint across the United States. Stand to benefit from an infrastructure bill. VMC, it's been in decline. They're well, seem to be buying to U.S. Some up. I mean, remember that does well if there's a housing boom. I know it's got a bad chart. That's what's sending it down. Maybe you wait a week or two, but boy, is that a good company? I need to go to. Oh, I need to go to John in Ohio. John. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, John. Hey, we watch you every night here in Oxford, uh, but I got to ask you. Thank you. When are you going to get excited? When am I going to get. Huh? <laughs> I like to I, see you excited. I'm hey. going to get excited. I got to get. I, I thought I came in excited. I came in hot every night here. Hey, I'm calling you. I'm calling you about Viacom. Viacom, B I A C. You know, I kind of like. I tell you, I kind of like the media stocks. They've ever since that Archegos. They've given up the ghost. Let's go back to them. I think they're going to have a pretty good fall, and I like Viacom here. I think they did a good job, and I think it's a it's time to buy it. Let's go to Alex in New York. Alex. Hi, Jim. Long-time viewer, first-time caller. I'm calling oh. about a Pennsylvania-based diagnostic company that just received FDA approval for an over-the-counter COVID-19 rapid home test called IntelliSwap. Jim, what are your thoughts on Orishore Technologies? Ticker OSUR. I know it's Bethlehem. It's about 15 minutes from the place where I caught that gigantic bass. I don't know you saw it on Twitter. A lot of nice people follow me on Twitter these days. Um, the problem is, is that I've got Binax. I got this. There's like so many guys doing this. Uh-uh. Can't do it. I'm sorry. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. Gaze at the craze. Marvel at the mania. 
But don't put your money where your memes are. Kramer drops a little common sense next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I think Jay Powell is a revolutionary Fed chair. I think he's saying that people don't make enough in this country. And until they make enough and until more people get a job, he's going to stay the course. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. Okay, new rule. There is no way to stick it to the man with your stock portfolio. If you think you're sticking it to the man, like so many of these meme stock pushers, you're probably just sticking it to yourself. This morning, I saw a poster from Wall Street Bets preaching about Corsair Gaming, a company that makes high-end computer equipment. And all I could say was, here we go again. I figured Corsair stock would jump eight or nine points in the post, and the hedge funds would come in and short the stock, slamming anyone who bought it near the highs. Sure enough, Corsair finished the day up 11%, but if you bought it at the open when it was pumped or anywhere over 40 where a lot traded, you lost big money as it closed at 36 bucks. But you got to think, who can blame the short sellers for taking advantage of this? They have the mean people basically working for them. Why not let them pump so you can sell high? I like Corsair. I think it's good company. Recommended for early on when it came uh, public. But with the exception of GameStop and AMC, stocks just don't go up for no reason. They usually have a catalyst, something, something that gives people a substantive reason to buy. Not just the hope that it'll be the next meme play, for heaven's sake. There was no catalyst here, and I think the whole short wrap is a reason to buy. Yes, 18% of Corsair stock is sold short. It's beginning to wear a little thin, don't you think? Now, I can hear someone saying, Kramer, you love Logitech, and that's up to you, so why can't you just get involved with Corsair, tell people to buy it? It's the same business. True, Logitech stock has zoomed 33% for the year, and Corsair is down slightly year-to-date after fading into the close today, as I told you it would. But the two aren't exactly comparable. Logitech has a much broader portfolio of products. Corsair makes high-end equipment that's much more focused on gaming, which is why it's been written off as a pandemic play that will lose traction now that it's safe for people to go out again. Granted, Corsair's reporting just a fantastic, a gigantic earnings beat this, this time around. But the stock got plastered in the news because Wall Street has lost interest in the gaming stocks. It's the same thing that's plagued the whole group. Activision, Blizzard, Take-Two, both reporting incredible numbers. Activision's up just 7%. Take-Two's down more than 10%. So I have to question the staying power of Corsair, up 11% today, or nearly 65 million shares traded when the actual float is only 31 million shares, implying people are just flitting in and out of this thing endlessly like a hive of angry hornets. Again, I'm a big believer in Corsair in the gaming space, but more generally, but I, if I own this stock, I view today's action as an opportunity to take some profits, but only after the mean people give it one more good college try tomorrow morning. Now, why would I do that? Because every week it seems like now there's a new meme stock and these moves rarely rarely stick. Last week was Wendy's, another company I love with a stock that was taken up by the Wall Street best crowd last Monday. They pushed it to just under 30. And at that point, many of their hedge fund brethren came in and shorted the stock because the meme guys had no thesis and they crushed it. Yeah, the meme guys, what were they recommending? Well, they said that it had... uh, 
uh, there's some good tweets. Um, the chicken tendies, because of the name tender, was like tendy. And then, of course, the clincher, quality of the salad. So, of course, the stock quickly plummeted back to 24, crushing anyone who bought it near the highs. And again, the meme people helped making fortunes for the, for the, uh, m- the baby-booming, well-suited, bespoke short sellers that they claim to hate but are doing their bidding. Now, I used to wonder why Wall Street Bets was so focused on AMC and GameStop, why they didn't try to branch out. But it's looking more and more like they don't have the firepower to branch out. That's why when someone tries to anoint a new meme stock, the only people who make money are the initial buyers who may or may not be pumping and dumping. And the short sellers who come in when the share price is impossibly high and have never really gotten such an opportunity that I've ever seen in my life other than what the Wall Street memes do for them, except for, again, AMC and GameStop. Oh, and look out. At the end of the day, the memester started going after Petco, symbol woof, because it has a big short position. I'm really the only guy on TV or maybe on Wall Street that follows this thing that closely. And I can tell you, it didn't have that great a quarter. It wasn't terrible, but it certainly wasn't as good as the now shun Chewy. You'd think the Wall Street bets would have more love for Chewy, given that their uh, savior, Ryan Goudeau Cohen of GameStop was one of its co-founders. Maybe they pump Petco again tomorrow and you can sell it higher. Seems like it's their game plan. Just remember, when you buy a stock solely because of a meme or a Reddit post, you can't expect the move to have any staying power unless it is AMC or GameStop. Of course, they're open at $40 and change today. At that point, you really were already too late. If you miss out on that initial move, you should keep your bat on your shoulder and wait for the next pitch. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.